If you would please open in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, and we'll be turning from there to 1 Corinthians 15. If you would please stand together as we read from Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to focus on verses 8 through 14, but begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. This is the word of the living God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Keep your finger there, we're coming back. But let's first now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's for the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
We thank you, O Lord, for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that that which is perishable will eventually give way to that which is imperishable and the mortal to immortality. We ask now that you help us to look beyond the things that we can see. Give us, O Lord, the eyes of faith to see Jesus resurrected from the dead, reigning and triumphant in heaven. And as our hope is hidden with him there, help us to more and more strive after that heavenly hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and turn back in your Bibles to Exodus. There's a great line in the text that we read from Exodus earlier, just a few moments ago in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And this evening in the sermon, we were going to engage what I'm going to describe as the great irony of the Christian life, which is that some of God's greatest blessings and even our greatest seasons of spiritual growth come to us in the context of great trials. We'll look at our text with the help of the outline that you have and first consider together what it is that causes adversity for the people of God. Exodus 1, beginning at verse 8, our primary text begins with the word now. It is a word that brings action before us and sets a scene which is in some ways new. This is a different stage in you will than things that have gone before. From the beginning of the chapter, you can see now that the sons of Jacob are all in Egypt, Joseph included. How long they have been there is actually not precisely clear. What is clear is that they've been there long enough to have children and a whole lot of them. They have multiplied and that greatly. This is an important thing to remember uh, from the book of Genesis. In many ways, the people of Israel already now in Egypt, but not the Egypt that we tend to think of. At the end of Genesis, the Israelites, about to be called that, are living in Egypt like royalty, not slavery. Remember the end of the book of Genesis? Joseph had risen to number two in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. In God's providence, Joseph had been used to spare Egypt from destruction and was rewarded greatly and then bestowed that reward upon his brothers in those fantastically emotional scenes. Now those same 11 brothers who once betrayed him are there with him and all together enjoying the best of the fruits of Egypt. The sons of Abraham are prospering, comfortable, and multiplying in Egypt. A land full of prosperity and a land, as you know, also full of idolatry. But the sun shall not shine on them this way forever. And so the now of our text in verse 8 takes us to a different place. A new Pharaoh arises, one that did not know Joseph. Commentators are unsure which Pharaoh this is. We are tempted to think that it's the Pharaoh right after the one that did know Joseph chronologically. It's quite likely not the case. Uh, it's unlikely that the Pharaoh that came right after the one alive when Joseph was alive would be the Pharaoh in reference here. In other words, quite a bit of time has likely uh, spanned. We could suggest that for two reasons. One, it'd be pretty unlikely that the next Pharaoh after the one in Joseph's lifetime, would have never heard of Joseph, since he was the one that saved them from this remarkable famine. 
Second, if you look at the language of verse 7, it suggests that Israel had multiplied exceedingly, something that would likely take more than one generation to do. So very often in a short span of time in the text, an awful lot of years are covered, and this is likely the case here. I've seen generations after the life of Joseph, when a new Pharaoh arises that does not know Joseph, And that language of him not knowing Joseph implies more than simply ignorance. It's not simply that he was unaware of Joseph. More than that, he was unaware of Joseph's God. He did not know Joseph nor Joseph's God. God had three things for Joseph and the people of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob. God had a people, he had a plan, and he had made promises And an earlier pharaoh would have heard of these things. This pharaoh does not know them in the sense of not only being unaware, but having no regard. The text tells us something very clear about this new pharaoh. Not only is he ignorant, unaware, and resistant of Joseph and his God, but far more importantly, he's a man of fear. Probably even uh, paranoid. In fact, the way fear often works itself out in a person's mind Uh, Fear can easily become paranoia, and paranoia often becomes the source of great evil, even cruelty. History has proven this point. In Germany, the Nazis were actually afraid of the Jews. It was part of their thinking. In South Africa, there was a term referred to as the black threat, uh, used to justify uh, many cruel things that were done. And here in our text, Pharaoh is afraid of the people of Israel. He describes them as being not only too many, but even too strong, potentially outnumbering the Egyptians. And what would happen if another country should attack Egypt and the Israelites should side with Egypt's enemies? And so this new fearful Pharaoh launches a horrific plan to enslave the people of God and to embitter their lives. Make no mistake about it, his intention is not simply to break their bodies, but also their spirit. The goal is that they would have nothing left, body or spirit, with which to fight against, to retaliate against the Egyptians. If you drop this down to a personal level, if you've ever been on the receiving end of a premeditated attack, by someone motivated by fear that has become perhaps even paranoia, you know the cruelty and the malice that can be poured in to such a plan. We all know how evil and malicious people can be at times, striking you when you are the most weak, exploiting your every fault line, whatever they may happen to be, and a clear purpose and plan to break you, body and soul. That's the plan of this Pharaoh. And so he works it out. He sets taskmasters over them. This is the beginning of the people of Israel, the people of God, becoming a slave people. They were afflicted with heavy burdens. And as we're told that, uh, the story, the timeline again of the text, uh, lunges forward once more, spanning a number of years. Enough time goes by that we were told that the people of God being uh, enslaved and enforced to do this work that they build two major cities, Pithom and Ramses. We know very little about Pithom other than what the text tells us here, that it was a military storage site 
this pharaoh had a plan to build uh, outposts with silos uh, where soldiers could store guns. That's the sort of storage site that Pithom was. Pharaoh clearly fearing war would come to his borders. Ramses is much more of a familiar city. It becomes the city of the pharaohs. It's where all the pharaohs would live in Egypt. The language that you have in the text there, uh, where Pharaoh says, verse 10, come. And then a little bit later, uh, Bill, John Curd, uh, Old Testament scholar, suggests that this is intentionally paralleling the language of Babel, where here you have another self-exalting man, exalting and lifting up a city, the city of man, at war against the city of God. Pharaoh exalting himself and his idols as though up to the heavens in a fearful response to the people and the plan of God. But in Genesis 11, it's not the people of God building the Tower of Babel. In Exodus, it is. Think of the irony. The people of God building idolatrous cities. I'm skipping over verse 12, but I will come back to it. But on the backside of verse 12, notice uh, the posture. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. It's quite a remarkable thing to say. The Egyptians were in dread. Not just Pharaoh. The Egyptians were in dread of the Israelites. Verse 13 intensifies what Pharaoh had began. And note the words. Uh, they, They stick out almost as though highlighted and in color. Ruthlessly, the people are mistreated and enslaved. What does it mean to be ruthless? It's the absence of mercy, kindness, or compassion. It's the one that that won't give up when you cry uncle and just keeps pushing until uh, you reach and pass a breaking point. The Egyptians were ruthless. Imagine everything that you know about antebellum slavery and pour it in uh, to what the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites and you would be spot on. It was ruthless. They worked with bitterness. They toiled doing hard service. Specifically, we are told that they were working to make brick and mortar. This would be hard physical labor all day long out in the sun without break, without reprieve, without uh, the necessary refreshments or creature comforts, all kinds of work in the field as well. The Egyptians forcing the Israelites to basically do literally all their heavy lifting. And then we're told once more toward the end of our section uh, in verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When you hear the same word twice in the same paragraph, it's supposed to catch your attention. How might you summarize Pharaoh and his relationships to the Israelites? He was ruthless. Hughes, in his commentary, makes a pretty interesting observation that in chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, there are two words used seven times. The one is multiplied highlighting uh, the work, providence, and plan of God, causing the people of God to multiply, fulfilling God's covenant promise. The other word is slave. The two stand in parallel, God's blessing and Pharaoh's ruthlessness. This is a textual way of emphasizing the fact that in the midst of of oppression, the people of God were still growing. A really important theme 
In spite of all that Pharaoh was doing, the people of God were still nonetheless thriving. But I, but I want to begin pulling the thread and looking behind the veil just a little bit and ask the question of the first point. What is the source of all this? Who's the, who's the genie standing behind the curtain? In the bigger picture, Pharaoh here is really only a puppet, but who is holding his strings? This is a question we ask sometimes in life. Who's really behind this? What is really going on? And the answer is that Satan is ultimately the one behind this. Satan is the one holding Pharaoh on the strings. Donald Barnhouse uh, says in his commentary on this text uh, of Egypt, it was the greatest symbol of Satan's enmity against the people of God. Satan is hard at work in the book of Exodus. Satan is the one at work in and through Pharaoh, opposing and oppressing, ruthlessly subjecting the people of God to this bitter life of toil under the sun. And is that not, beloved, what Satan always does? Is he not always seeking to thwart the people, the plans, and the promises of God? Let me say this rather forcefully. Satan hates you. And Christians sometimes act like he doesn't exist. As though he's not the one holding the puppet by the strings. As though he's not the one standing behind the curtain. And not only does he hate you, he's always trying to break you, body and soul. So what hope is there for the people of God? For the Israelites who have taskmasters over them, and a Pharaoh over them, and Satan holding the strings of the puppet. Well, hope for them is found in God himself. This takes us to our second point. If we see Satan standing behind Pharaoh and his ruthless plan, we must also see, perhaps even more importantly, that it is God who is truly Lord and King and stands not simply behind the people of God, but even goes before them in the midst of their oppression. In the big picture, God had already foretold Abraham that everything happening in Exodus chapter 1 was going to happen. It's all on schedule. God had said to Abraham earlier in Genesis that you're going to have children. And how many? As innumerable as the sand on the seashore. And seven times we were told in Exodus chapter 1 about the people of Israel multiplying because God is fulfilling his promise. And God also said to Abraham, but know this. Your descendants who will multiply in Egypt will also be bitterly enslaved. And seven times we were told in Exodus 1 that that also has come to pass. But God made a promise that after all this, I will bring them up dot, 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 400 years later. God had a purpose. God had a plan. God had a people. And we can take comfort in what the people of God then may have known, should have known, what we may know and should know. Satan cannot thwart God's plans. He can oppose, he can oppress, but he cannot ultimately undo the purposes and plans of God. In fact, it is actually God who thwarts Satan. Satan's plan, and this is where we'll come again to verse 12. Look at it. It's just such a great verse. But the more 
they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You could almost get the sense Satan now looks like a, like a frustrated fool. He's trying really hard. And the harder he tries, the more he fails. The more he tries to beat down the people of God, the more they keep springing up. The more Satan opposes the purpose, the plan, the people of God, the more he loses. That is the point of this verse. In spite of Pharaoh's plan, God caused them to continue to multiply In spite of his oppression, the people continue to prosper. And why? It's because God was not only in control, God was keeping his plan. He was keeping his promises. He was keeping, like a great shepherd, his people. And so Israel, now an embittered, slave people, harshly oppressed and taskmastered, continues to grow and grow and grow and grow exactly what Pharaoh feared would happen. You see the irony? Exactly what Pharaoh tried to stop is what God did. What he tried to prevent is what God prospered. They grew in body and they grew in spirit. Scripture says elsewhere that God thwarts the plan of the wicked, but he caused the way of the righteous to prosper. God thwarts the plan of Satan, but it's not simply Satan and Pharaoh, beloved. Make sure you capture this. It's not simply Satan and Pharaoh that oppose and oppress the people of God. There's another enemy, and it stands behind the curtain, and it is death. Death is an enemy, even here in the text. Sin is an enemy, and it is displayed here in the text. How do we know that sin and death are in view? Uh, Because the language of the curse of Genesis 3 is all over Exodus 1. You hear it in the language of slavery. You hear it in the burdensome uh, language of task mastery. But you hear it particularly in the work that they are to do. Look verse 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. What did God promise to Adam and Eve? Because of the Because of sin, your work in the field will be cursed and bitter. Because of sin, even in and through pain, you will bear children. As Israel now uh, lives and multiplies, it does so painfully. As Israel uh, lives their life under the sun, it does so uh, in a sense of slavery. They are slaves, and they are far from home. And though they are growing numerically, here is the point. The curse is all around them. It is all over them. It dominates their life. What Israel is here experiencing is not just Pharaoh's wrath, but in many ways it is a dramatic display of the wages of sin. Notice the way that the book of Genesis ended. Genesis, the book of life, in its last paragraph, is all about death. And the book of Exodus picks up this thing. Joseph, who was alive, is now dead. It's not simply Pharaoh that is an enemy of the people of God. It is death as well. Sin is the great enslaver even more so than Pharaoh. So what will save them? What will save us? 
You're probably thinking, I've got a Pharaoh in my life. But more importantly, even if you don't have a Pharaoh in your life, you have sin in your life, and the wages of sin is a ruthless taskmaster. It does not negotiate. It has no respect for the young, the poor, young or old, rich, poor, black, white, right? So what can save us? The answer is God himself, and to be more particular, it is the Son of God. Even this text here in Exodus 1 draws our attention to the Son of God in a couple of different ways. God will not simply keep the promises that he made to Abraham. He will keep the promises that he made to Israel. The Abrahamic promises are foundational, but they're not alone. God had made promises to Adam before Abraham, and he makes promises to Israel after Abraham, and those promises all converge upon one person who can reverse the curse and defeat a foe that is greater than Pharaoh. Think about the way that Isaiah speaks in this regard from Isaiah 53 verse 4, as Israel bears a great and heavy load Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. As Israel bears the weight of the curse in Egypt, it's, it's, only, it's a type, it's a shadow, it's an actor on the stage, it's not the real thing. But when Jesus comes, the awful load of our sin, slavery to sin, he bears, beloved, the full weight of it all. And that's why the language of burdens being carried is used by Isaiah. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, anguish and bitterness, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Even the word bitter in our text leads us to our Savior. Fourteen chapters later, Israel will begin to celebrate the Passover. And they will do so with a particular meal. Bitter herbs shall be used. And Jesus will celebrate that Passover, and he will drink of a bitter cup. And he will fulfill the Passover plan, because he is the great sacrifice for the wages of our sin. He alone is the one who can reverse the curse. He alone is the one who can defeat all of our enemies, not simply our pharaohs in our life, but that which threatens our life, the great taskmaster, death itself. And he does. By giving his life in obedience, by surrendering his life in sacrifice, and then triumphing, over all of our enemies in his resurrection. And that brings us to our third and final point to consider, the fruit that is found for the people of God, even as we endure adversity. You cannot miss the fruit of the text. In many ways, as I said at the beginning, this text and the dynamic here speaks deeply into the Christian's heart It stirs us even as it challenges and unsettles us. Why? Because in Exodus 1, the people of God are suffering. And surely you could imagine someone sitting around saying, how long will we have to endure this? 
where is God in the midst of my suffering? If we're on his side and he's on our side, why is Pharaoh on the other side? Why are we enslaved? Why are we dying in Egypt? Why, 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 and where is God? Those are fair questions. You didn't make them up. You haven't, if you haven't asked them, you will. And you should know you are in good company. You're in the company of the people of God. So what is the fruit then that we are attempting to consider? Well, uh, don't lose sight of it. Again, it's in verse 12. God's people grew and they grew more and more and more. There are three mores in the midst of adversity. When do God's people grow the most? When things are easy or in the midst of adversity? When do you grow the most? When things are easy or in the midst of adversity? Don't you wish it were not this way? I wish for you it were not this way. But God's people grow the most during seasons of adversity. And this is the way it is all over the Bible, not just in the book of Exodus. And it's the way it is all over history. And it's the way it is, beloved, all around the room. Israel grows most numerically and arguably spiritually under the hand of adversity. Jump over in the book of Acts in the morning. And when, what happens to the church when persecution comes? It just explodes and grows uh, numerically. I don't know who said it first. It's attributed to different people, but such a wonderful line. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that was said by someone after the New Testament. And we could go on down uh, the trail of history and look at so many uh, wonderfully edifying things that come to us, even by way of great adversity. Luther uh, sentenced away and uh, exiled away from his own church and there uh, in his tower translating the Bible and great benefit to the people of Germany and a significant contribution to the Protestant Reformation and John Bunyan. I mean, where would Christianity be without Pilgrim's Progress? And where did he write it from? On a beach in Hawaii. <laughs> Prison in England for the faith. Why is it so many of the best works, the best hymns, come from the people of God enduring the hardest seasons? Do you see the poetic irony? Do you see the providential plan? Often our best spiritual growth comes during difficult time, and though we wish it were different, this is exactly the way that it is. Many of our own lives, even in this room, testify to this very reality, and if we live long enough by God's grace to get old in the faith and look back at the seasons where we grew the most, they will also likely be the seasons in which we wept the most, and the people of God wrapped their arms around us, and the grace of God held us high above those waters. That's just how it works. And yes, there is a real question. Why did God allow it? But maybe the wording there is even a bit too soft. Why did he bring it? I mean, after all, he told Abraham, this is how it's going to be. It's not like God was on vacation and came back one day and said, oh no, they're in Egypt. They need my help. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't surprised. 
And he's not surprised by the hard providences in which you sometimes find yourself, beloved. It's a fair question, but don't crash on the rocks. Remember, again, that in the beginning of Exodus 1, Israel's not simply in Egypt. Egypt is getting into Israel. They were comfortable. They were becoming Egyptians. They were at home there. Generations later, their children spoke the language of the land, not simply the language of the patriarchs. This was not God's plan for them. It never was. God didn't simply allow this for Israel. He told them it was going to be. He promised, however, this is very important, to be with them even during their darkest hour. Even though they went all the way into Egypt, down into slavery, down, down, and down, he would be with them wherever they went. The same is true for all of God's people, even now. God does not promise you, beloved, the absence of adversity in your life. But he does promise that he will always be with you. And why does he take us through these hard waters? That for each and every one of us comes in different shapes and sizes. You're not slaves in Egypt. But you know the spirit of Pharaoh. You don't have taskmasters over you. But you fear the wages of sin. Why does he take us through these seasons? To grow us. And not numerically. That happens too. But spiritually. Let's say it differently. To conform us to the image of Christ. Recently I've been reading Samuel Rutherford, Rutherford who I, I really, really like. He, he, he's really growing up the tree for me. And he has so, so many wonderful little phrases. He refers to the little crosses that God uh, sometimes uses to conform us to the image who bore the greater cross. How many little crosses do we bear? And is it not right to call them little in comparison to the one who bore the greater cross? And this was a man, uh, a pastor, who was exiled, who was arrested for his faith, who was married, and his wife of four years died. He remarried, had nine children, buried eight of them. And he turned such wonderful phrases in the midst of all that adversity. He wrote letters summarized in a great little book called Grace in Winter. And if, if you love the person next to you, you'd buy them that book. One of the best lines in that book, in my opinion, is where he says that we ought, to, as God's people, to learn to kiss a striking Lord. You could misunderstand the phrase. Learn to kiss a striking Lord. When I say kiss, you think the sweet little cute thing that you do with your spouse or kids give to their parents. It has that sense. But it also has the sense of Psalm 2. Submitting to a striking Lord. To know that even if in this world we should bear little crosses, hard providences, then the very midst of them, our Lord is not off duty or caught off guard but rather providentially working in and through us to conform us to the image of his son. That is his goal. That is his plan for his people. So it raises the question, you've already begun thinking about it, beloved, what adversity are you enduring? Do you see that on the one hand, uh, those who persecute you may have a little bit of Satan in them. He is real. And he is often the one holding the puppet strings. And Satan has a desire for you to break you, 
body, and soul. But just as it was with Israel, it is God who goes ahead of you, who guards behind you, and is always with you on that field of adversity. And not only is he with you and guarding you, quite importantly, beloved, he is growing you. This is his plan, to grow you through these trials for his glory and even for your good. This is why the New Testament will speak to this subject. And people like Peter, who endured quite a lot, will say, Beloved, don't be surprised when fiery trials overtake you. Why? Because if the world hated our Savior, of course it's going to hate you. Satan hates the church, body and soul, and will strike at it, poke at it, though darts at it, every possible way that he can and through every possible puppet he can find. So don't be surprised, but don't be moved by it. I mean that in the negative sense. We read from 1 Corinthians 15. I love the way that that chapter ends. The last verse was Van Til's favorite verse. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord Jesus Christ your labor is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus, beloved, did all the work necessary for your salvation. He overcame death. He overcame the curse. And that's why, even as we work, we are not slaves. Even as we labor, it is not in vain. And even as we engage that serpent of old, he is already defeated. His work will fail. But yours will not. So on that stage where you find yourself standing against adversity. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, that's fruitfulness, in the work of the Lord. Why? Be very clear. Because the resurrection of Jesus has triumphed over all your foes. Not just the puppet, but the one holding the strings. And the resurrection of Jesus is your goal and your inheritance. It is your final triumph. It is your everlasting reward. And all these trials, says Rutherford, they actually become like wings. We don't see it so easily, but when you think about it, it's true. They become like wings, lifting us up to heaven this way, more and more separating us from the things of this world and drawing us closer to heaven with God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do not take lightly the things that we sometimes suffer in this world and the things that our our beloved friends and family members, church members, suffer in this world. At times, little crosses can seem quite heavy, and small foes can seem rather large. And so we thank you that we have a Savior in heaven who bore the perfect weight, the full weight of the cross, and endured the greatest of all of our foes, the wages of our sin, death itself, even Satan. And we thank you, O Lord, that through the resurrection of Jesus, we don't simply have victory, we have hope that our Savior is always with us, that our God is not caught off guard 
when trials overtake us. We ask, Lord, that more and more you'd help us to fix our eyes upon Christ, that you would take us by the hand, and if you should lead us through the valley, help us to remember that you are there. If we should sense that we are weak, help us to confess that it is true, but our God is strong. And when our enemies seem many, help us to know in our heart of hearts, O Lord, that you will give us the victory in Jesus Christ, and therefore by your grace we can be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.